and welcome fellow nerdlings to a Halloween bonus episode of Sagas of She After Dark. I'm Emily. And I'm Gemma. And this time we get to take a look into the dark, dark corners of Emily's brain and look at some female cult leaders. A big warning that this gets dark really fast and I may need a therapy goat by the end of it. I think we're going to have to start using patron money to uh, buy you a therapy goat. <laughs> I just need therapy. <laughs> if it sounds like I hate every second of this, please know it's not because I don't enjoy making podcasts for you. It's just I don't like the topic. <laughs> anyway, when we say cult, what do you mean by cult? The word cult can broadly be defined as a formal religious veneration, a system of religious beliefs and its body of adherence, a religion regarded as unorthodox or superior, great devotion to a person or idea, as well as persons united by devotion or allegiance to an artistic or intellectual movement or figure. But this definition can encompass anyone from deranged religious cults to collectors. Some can even include Star Wars collections in that. Psychiatrist Robert J. Lifton developed three primary characteristics in the 80s, uh, which are the most common features shared by destructive cults. So the first one is a charismatic leader who increasingly becomes an object of worship as the general principles that may have originally sustained the group lose power. Um, so the leader is a living leader who has no meaningful accountability and becomes the single most defining element of the group and its source of power and authority. The second is a process of indoctrination or education, which is in use that can be seen as coercive persuasion or through reform, which you know more commonly called brainwashing. The culmination of this process can be seen by members of the group often doing things that are not in their own best interests, but consistently in the best interest of the group and its leader. And the third is economic, sexual and other exploitation of group members by the leader and the ruling members of the cult. Cult leaders are known to target vulnerable people, usually because they lack something in their life and the most effective cult leaders make their followers feel like children who are then desperate to please the authoritative figure in their life. While many cults are run by men, women can make just as effective cult leaders. They may use their super superficial charm to build their victim's self-esteem before turning it against them when the moment suits, making them feel special until they then point out all their faults. As a society, we stereotype females as the fairer sex, which means that narcissistic women can often get away with more than men. And in this bonus episode, we're going to take a look at a handful of those female cults or female-led cults. I didn't realise there were so many different types of cults. I kind of thought it was just one thing. Yeah, I didn't realise that you could see being Star Wars collectors or, you know, any kind of fandom collector could become, or a fandom itself could become a cult. It's obviously destructive cults that are the ones that are always put in the media. I guess that makes sense, though, because um, in religious terms, you have, like, the cult of a certain saint. Or, yeah. Or, so I guess that makes sense. So who are we starting with? First up, we have Sylvia Moraz Moreno, and she was the leader of a cult that sacrificed people to Santa Morta, which is the Mexican goddess who promises safe delivery to the afterlife. 
Sylvia was born in 1968 in Mexico and she described her crimes as offerings to Santa Morta. She was born into poverty and gave birth to her first child at the age of 16 and by the age of 29 she had four children. We don't know that much about her until she begins killing people. Um, we do know that at some point she developed this fascination with Santa Morta and she's also known, or Santa Morta is also known as Our Lady of Holy Death and is regarded by followers as the Me of the Mexican Catholic Church as the patron saint of death, believing that the woman depicted as a skeletal female figure will bring healing, wealth and passage to the afterlife. But other Catholics around the world disagree with this um, and you quite often see Mexican gang members um, create shrines to her in their jail cells as there's a distinct link between the reverence of Santa Morta and poverty. So who did she pull into her cult? Strangely enough, her own family became influenced by her beliefs. She decided that by offering sacrifices to Santa Morta, she could gain prosperity and eight members of her family, including four of her children, uh, her boyfriend and her own father all agreed that the best way to please Santa Morta was through these sacrificial offerings. Did they go ahead with their plans? Uh, unfortunately. So clear-tied Romero Pacheco, sorry if I'm much in the names by the way, was their first victim. She was a 55-year-old woman who made a living selling popsicles and she had no family. Uh, clear-tied believed that Sylvia was one of her friends and one day Sylvia asked clear to pick up a 20 peso note on the floor and when she bent down Sylvia struck her with an axe. She then took the blood and made her first offering at the altar of Santa Morte before she burned the body near her home. Uh, the second victim was the son of her boyfriend, 10-year-old Martin Rios. He'd been handpicked by the family as a sacrifice and they got him drunk and Sylvia's 13-year-old daughter reportedly was the one that stabbed him. Despite being brutally attacked, he was actually still alive when the ritual began, where the family slit his wrists and neck before collecting his blood in containers and spreading it around the altar that they'd made dedicated to Santa Morta. What makes it even worse is that Sylvia had adopted this boy before they killed him. The third, uh, the family's third and final murder victim was Sylvia's, um, her own grandson, who was 10-year-old Jesus Martinez. She thought that he was a worthy sacrifice and convinced one of her own daughters to kill him while she held him over the altar. And three other children were present at this sacrifice with the oldest being just five years old. Change my mind, I don't want to do After Dark podcasts anymore. Yeah, this one's really bad. It's really awful. So how were they eventually, oh, please tell me they were, but how were they caught? It took two years for police to finally turn their attention to the Moraz family. But they found Jesus' body reportedly under her youngest daughter's floorboards after he'd been reported missing by his stepfather. The police then found the ritual site with the large altar, which was covered in traces of blood. And in March 2012, all eight members of the family were arrested for their crimes. Six received sentences of 60 years in prison. But Sylvia herself was sentenced to 180 years for orchestrating the murders and her 15-year-old daughter was sent to a detention centre. Now the American media published the story and in the reporting some of the details get mixed up with different articles claiming the bodies were found at the same location 
another statement that were found in different places around the town that the family lived in. Just because we obviously can't share our script with you, there's actually a picture of a duckling on a skateboard at this point because it was the only way I felt I could get through the rest of this podcast. Yeah, there's some more. I've left them all in. I mean, 2012 is quite recent. Yeah. Really recent. It's really difficult so the- to get a handle on um, where the bodies were found or what kind of gave it away because obviously the American media took it and kind of had a field day with it. And some say that um, their first victim was found at the same site where the altar was. Obviously, some said that she, so we had burnt the body uh, and then disposed of it somewhere else. Um, some people said that all the bodies were underneath the floorboards of a house. Um, some said they were dotted around the whole town so that they wouldn't get caught. Um, yeah, it's really difficult to kind of put it all together. But... That's probably one of the worst ones I think I've ever read. I could kind of see a cult killing other people, but to kill your own family members seems really extreme. Also kind of, when we think of female killers, we tend to think of them using poison. Mm. Um, to hit somebody with an axe and to slit somebody's throat and wrists, that's very bloody. Yeah. Well, they, they would do that and then collect all the blood and then the blood would be taken to the They didn't altar. like do anything, I was going to say they didn't do anything weird, but it's all pretty weird, but, but they didn't drink it or anything. Not that I found. It looks like it was just literally offered up to her. Or Santa Maria. Okay. Just offered up to her and her altar. Who's our second female cult leader? So, our second one defies all stereotypes, killing in a way that most women don't. And I'm really sorry, it's another human sacrifice one. So, Clementine Barnabet was born around 1894 in Louisiana. She grew up with both her parents and her brother, uh, Zephyr Severin, but her home was an abusive one. Her father couldn't and didn't want to hide his temper, but despite this, she actually looked up to him enough to follow his lead, especially when it came to voodoo. And along with her brother, they formed the Church of Sacrifice, which had a particular interest in voodoo culture. And obviously we've, in a previous After Dark podcast, have talked about voodoo but this is one where you can media kind of make voodoo look really bad. So in 1909 in Rain, Louisiana, Edna Opulas and her three children were murdered in their home. Walter Byers and his family followed soon after, and four weeks later, another family were brutally axed to death. In January of 1911, officers were called to another Louisiana home in Crowley, and upon entering the property, had the shock of their lives. A husband, his wife and young son were lying on the floor with their skulls exposed. They'd been brutally murdered with an axe and a bucket of their blood had been left in the room. The savage nature of the killings led police to believe that a male serial killer was at large in Crowley, Louisiana, which was a small town near the Texas border. But San Antonio in Texas would also experience a horror of murders that were similar. Alfred and Elizabeth Caseaway, along with their three children, suffered the same fate as the families in Louisiana. It didn't take that long for police investigation to focus on Robert Barnabet, Clementine's father. He was actually a known criminal with a violent past and his mistress had talked to a friend about his possible involvement. Robert was arrested and his trial took place almost immediately in 1911. And both Zephyrin and Clementine testified in court for the prosecution. Clementine told the court how she'd witnessed her father coming home one night with blood all over him. 
So is that the end of the story? No, sorry. While Robert was in jail, the police received information on another murder. In November of 1911, another Lafayette family was killed. Norbert Randall, his wife and three children were all murdered in the same brutal way, but there was a slight variation to the killings. Norbert was shot in the head rather than by use of an axe. And Sheriff Louise Lacoste immediately turned his attention to Robert's children. And the blood police found on 17-year-old Clementine's clothes ignited suspicion that she may have been involved. And when police performed a second search, they found more of her bloody clothes, which included evidence of brain matter. And without an alibi, she was immediately taken to jail. Okay, so that's the end. No, the killing still didn't stop. Three more families were murdered in 1912, and the police came to the conclusion that the murderers, the murders were orchestrated by a group of killers all belonging to a cult. The first family was the Broussard family in Lake Charles. These murders were the most ritualistic and shocking. The child's blood was drained into buckets and left by their beds, and on the wall, uh, a message that was written in blood read, when he maketh the inquisition for blood, he forgetteth not the cry of the humble. It was signed by an entity calling itself Human Five. With the investigation ongoing, the police were surprised in April of 1912 when Clementine confessed to killing 17 people. She said that she sacrificed children because she didn't want them to be orphans. And she said she would dress as a man to be less conspicuous at night and travel between towns by train to carry out the murders. And She'd also claimed that she met a voodoo doctor who died and gave her the power to remain undetected while killing. So what was the motivation for all of this killing then? Immortality. Clementine and the other members of the Church of the Sacrificed believed that killing these sinners would lead them to an eternal life. And because they were doing the good work, they were protected. She also revealed that her cult was responsible for early murders in rain and other murders as far away as Texas and Mississippi. And newspapers eventually attributed up to 35 killings to Clementine, either by her hand or her instruction, with Clementine admitting to killing 17 people herself. And she was sent to serve a life sentence in the notorious Angola farm prison near Baton Rouge. Well, I mean, at least she spent the rest of her life in prison. Uh, no. After 10 years, she was released on good behaviour. But after this release, she disappears. And in 18, uh, 1985, a Louisiana woman visited her 103-year-old great-grandmother who told her this terrifying tale of Clementine Barnabet. After the elderly woman died the same year, a youthful portrait of her was passed down to her great-granddaughter. The likeness in the painting was a match for newspaper photographs of Clementine Barnabet. Now, a major issue in not having all the details was down to the fact that she and her family were African-American, meaning that the case was massively underreported, and so she's relatively unknown in popular culture. But I would definitely not want to bump into her ghost. No, not at all. One of the stories that I read um, said that she just disappeared out of prison, just upped and vanished, and people attributed it to the voodoo. But obviously then when I started reading it, she was actually released on good behaviour after 10 years and then suddenly disappeared, so she must have changed her name. Mm. I read quite a lot about voodoo for our witchcraft and magic after dark, which we did September. Yeah. And from what I read, voodoo was mostly, you know, quite a, a light religion. Yeah. There's, the darkness is more Hollywood interpretation. Yeah. 
but I guess it really does point to the fact that there are good and bad in every religion and they will use their religion to justify their good and bad deeds. Yeah, exactly. I think, and obviously some of this stuff could have been really pushed by the media to make it sound worse because obviously you're living in a time where it's not that accepted any other religion other than Christianity still, really. So suddenly these, this African-American family is obviously practising a religion that's not Christianity. And there are some really horrible details um, that I came across about what they did to the bodies. I really just didn't want to go there because it was too far. It was just too far. I mean, if it's too dark for you, it, it must have been really, really dark. I think what it was is it's because it was these children's bodies. I just needed to get away from it. It was just too much. Basically, someone reported that not only did they kill these children, but they kind of splintered their fingers. When the kids died, their hands would be out in the, the shape of five, because obviously they called themselves some, a church. And then they kind of got, after that message, like the human five. So they then made all their victims have a, a five showing by splitting their fingers open. So obviously then when the body goes into rigor mortis, that's how their hands would freeze. So was that done post-mortem or pre-mortem? I, I think post-mortem. I mean, that's a small blessing, but a very small blessing. Yeah. I thought we'd try and get the really dark ones over first. Okay. So who's number three on our list? The third female cult leader looks to Heaven Gate and Bonnie Nettles. While Bonnie was no longer alive when the cult members committed mass suicide in 1997, her beliefs were central to the lead up to this mass suicide. Bonnie was raised a Baptist and she started to become a nurse before marrying a Houston businessman, Joseph Nettles. However, their life wasn't to be happy ever after. In 1972, the marriage began to break down when Bonnie became interested in a monk by the name of Brother Francis. Doesn't sound that too odd until you realize that he was alive in the 1800s and Bonnie believed that she could communicate with him and that he'd instructed her to hold regular seances and meetings in her home. And as time went on, she began to study the occult, theosophy uh, and astrology, leading her to visit a fortune teller who told her that she would meet a mysterious long-haired man, and this man would be Marshall Applewhite. So Applewhite had an interest in fate, and the couple would immediately hit it off. Boy did an astrological reading for Marshall and told him that their stars were aligned, on New Year's Day of 1973, she left her husband and children to embark on what she saw as a mission with Applewhite. Bonnie had now moved on from this Brother Francis thing, and she believed that she can communicate with aliens, informing Applewhite of their instructions. So Bonnie would be the brains of the cult, and Marshall would be the face. So Heaven's Gate was formed in 1974 with beliefs centered around the belief in UFOs, aliens, and levels of existence, attracting followers based on their unique belief system. They even changed their names. So Applewhite became Doe and Bonnie became T. I don't even have words. So what exactly was their belief system? So the followers of this cult were told that the only way to survive recycling of the earth would be to leave their bodies and join the next level, which was also known as heaven. This higher existence was promised to followers who gave themselves the Heaven's Gate cult and moved away from their work and families. And they'd even been known to speak about the coming of aliens in public, like actual um, 
talks in, I guess we'd call them village halls here, but obviously America's are not really the same. You said Bonnie wasn't alive for the mass suicide? In 1983, Bonnie was diagnosed with cancer and had to have one of her eyes removed. When she was informed that the cancer had spread, Bonnie dismissed the doctor's worries um, as she and Applewhite believed that they were meant to ascend to the next level together. But in June of 1985, Bonnie passed away in Parkland Memorial Hospital and Applewhite had her cremated and her ashes were spread over a lake in Texas. Now missing a founding member of the cult, you might expect that there might have been some questions from the members, but Applewhite managed to convince the group's most loyal followers that T um, had finished her work on Earth and she was ascended to the next level, ready to help them prepare. Um, while she died before her followers, her teachings tend to suggest that the pair were priming their followers for an eventual ascent, but they just hadn't decided when the best time would be. Following an anonymous tip, police entered a mansion in Ranco, Santa Fe, an exclusive suburb of San Diego, California, and discovered 39 victims of mass suicide. The deceased were 21 women and 18 men of varying ages. They were all found lying peaceably in matching dark clothes and Nike trainers. The star was actually discontinued following the deaths as they did become a macabre collector item selling for thousands of dollars, but none of the deceased had any noticeable signs of blood or trauma. The cult members had drunk a lethal mixture of phenobarbital and vodka and then lay down to die, hoping to leave their body, bodily containers, enter an alien spacecraft and pass through Heaven's Gate. Because that's perfectly normal. I think it was quite disturbing to police when they went in that every single member was wearing the exact same thing. Yeah, I mean, I didn't realise Nike trainers were the in thing. People were literally putting them on eBay and they were selling for one I think one pair sold for over $20,000. So Nike just discontinued it and they've never made them since. So, who is our final female cult leader? For our final female cult leader... We're heading to Australia and what was known as the family. So in June 2019, Anne Hamilton Bryn, guru of a cult known as the family, died aged 98. She was born in 1921 as Evelyn Grace Victoria Edwards. Anne, as she would be known, had a difficult start in life, which might actually be the reason behind her becoming a leader of this cult. She was the eldest of seven children and suffered heavily due to poverty. In 1941, her mother was diagnosed with schizophrenia and spent time in institutions. And it's been speculated that Anne may have actually inherited some mental health problems from her mother. Anne moved away from home as soon as she could and then changed, legally changed her name, obviously, to Anne. She became a yoga teacher and on the surface, she led a relatively ordinary life, but she was hiding something. At some point, she decided that she was the reincarnation of Jesus I'm guessing that this must have led people to think she was troubled. You'd think so, um, but when she met Dr. Raynard Johnson, he listened to her beliefs and decided to co-found a movement with her. Originally called the Great White Brotherhood, the cult would um, also be known as other names until it got to the family. And together they hosted regular meetings which were attended by nurses and psychiatrists. Anne was said to have had visions but, I mean, she was also known for her use of LSD. In one of her visions, she saw that 
she needed to adopt children to save their souls from the apocalypse. The group focused on a mix of Christian and New Age teachings with the most prominent individuals claiming they were reincarnated apostles. And as I said, many of her followers were doctors and nurses. So it was easy for them to find vulnerable individuals and manipulate them into the cult's beliefs. In 1968, Anne adopted her first child and she began to gain as many children as she could. Members of the cult were encouraged to give up their own children so that Anne could raise them. And through her followers' connections, she was also able to, able to adopt numerous children that weren't related to her or members of the cult. And in the space of seven years, she'd adopted, that's got air quotes around it, 14 children. There was a slight issue in her adoption of the children, though, as her vision saw the ideal child as being blonde-haired and blue-eyed, of course. So she made all the children dye their hair. Not only were they forced to dye their hair, but they were kept in seclusion and homeschooled. Anne also fed them a variety of drugs, including Mogadon and Valium, to subdue them. And she'd created a coming-of-age ceremony, which involved the children taking LSD and being left alone in a dark room. Another, one of the victims, one of the child victims of the cult, said that they ate meagre vegetarian meals and were frequently punished. Aunties, as they were known, who were part of Anne's inner circle, held children's heads underwater and hands above candles to the point of burning them. And while Anne, when she wasn't away traveling, obviously drumming up more followers, sometimes beat them with her stiletto heels. So how were they stopped? They Mainly, were, I hope. Yeah, and mainly down to one of her children. So Sarah Hamilton Bryn was a strong-willed child, and as she got older, she began to fight against her mother's control, and it eventually led to her being expelled from the sect. The Victoria Police finally had a willing witness that would tell them everything about the cult. And in August of 1987, following a police raid, all the children were removed, and Anne and her husband hid out in America. Only a handful of children were taken away following the raid, but there had been some 28 children adopted by Anne. In 1993, the pair were finally arrested and extradited back to Australia to face charges. But despite all that she'd done, she was only ordered to pay $5,000 in fees for the false registration of the children's births. But throughout the rest of her life, Anne would be taken to court numerous times by her victims, her granddaughter, Rebecca Cook Hamilton, received $250,000 in compensation. Anne developed dementia and was placed in a specialist care home and lived out the rest of her life there. She died on June the 14th, 2009, with an estimated $10 million estate. I mean, that feels like she got off very lightly. 100%. 100%. I can't believe that she wasn't arrested for child kidnapping or something more than just the fact that she just didn't register these births properly. I mean, they said that obviously she'd got nurses, doctors, psychiatrists, people that were kind of dealing with child services as well. So if kids needed adopting, they kind of just forged paperwork. Like the whole thing doesn't sit right that she was allowed to die with a $10 million estate, but make these kids' lives living hell. I mean, some people, obviously now adults, really suffer with PTSD from what happened to them as kids. I mean... Imagine being forced to take a hallucinogenic and then being shoved in a dark room. That cannot be good for a child. Not for anyone, never mind a child, but... So when the children reached maturity, were they forced to, to stay in the family or could they move out? I think, I think the whole idea was that they'd be so indoctrinated 
by the point of becoming an adult that they would stay because they weren't allowed out into the outside world. That was all they knew. That's what they thought was normal. So they'd reach a point where they would became they became adults, and obviously they'd been on all these different concoctions of drugs and indoctrination. They had no idea what life outside was because she was being given them as babies. She literally could mold them from from birth. That's terrible. Yeah. So I noticed in all of these, and this might not be something you have an answer for, so I apologise, but when you look at male cults, um, there's only an element of sex to them. Yeah. You know, like the, the cult leader sleeps with all of the women, despite them being married or their age. Mm. It doesn't seem to be that with female-led cults. No, I don't, there might be, but the ones that I've obviously looked into, it doesn't seem to be that, I mean... You've got one where they're kind of looking for or two where they're looking for immortality or more money, and they bring their family into it. So it's quite a almost maternal way of bringing them in. That's the difference between male and female cult leaders. You kind of act like this big mum who will look after you and care for you and make sure you're okay. Um, I don't know in Heaven Gate cult if obviously after T passed away, if that then became a cult where sexual exploitation was kind of used more because I obviously looked at her part within the cult world than his part so it might be mm. that that then happened um, after her death or even still during but it just kind of struck me as similar because obviously we've been looking at female serial killers for our after dark this month mm. because our listeners hate us <laughs> oh, hate me I should say you quite enjoyed it you weirdo but in that like female serial killers don't have that sexual element but male killers do so i wondered if it was like a crossover there maybe do you remember though when we did uh we did our blog posts on female criminals and i did one on jolly jane who was a nurse she actually she got a sexual thrill from killing them because she got in bed with them while she killed them but that was kind of a strange one like it wasn't really known that that's why women did the killing yeah so maybe it's more our brain doesn't want to believe that women could be that deviant i think maybe it is more common for men in cults to use that against them i'm sure there's probably evidence of the women these female cult leaders using it i mean there's no telling why any of them wouldn't have used it as kind Mm. of a way of pulling people in maybe so you know really making people infatuated with them to pull them in especially in the bigger cults where it wasn't just a family one that does make sense so thank you for listening to this bonus episode of After Dark. We hope Emily didn't traumatise you too much. As you may have seen, over the last week, we've been holding a special offer for new patrons. There are now seven bonus Halloween episodes available exclusively to our patrons, along with early access to our After Dark episodes, our research and resource home. And if you'd like to listen to our posts, all in one go instead of reading them we now have a patron level where that's offered so to find out more about our patron page um you can head over to that page via links in the description to this podcast or feel free to message us via our website sagasofshe.co.uk or contact us through social media so until next time take care of yourselves and each other <laughs> <laughs>